We gotta go to the bullpen. Welcome listeners, wherever you are, to another episode of the Highland Bullpen. Now we've got the Bullpen Bros back together, myself, Alan, Dave Jr. and Yorkshire Dave are all ready and raring to go. But will we have any baseball to watch in the weeks to come? Well, that's still very much in the air, like a home run soaring over the fence. Now guys, what do we reckon as we stand here tonight, the deadline has been pushed back, the Union and MLB are locked in negotiations to try and find a breakthrough, but this has been going on for months and do we have hope? We'll start off with Dave Jr. Well, Richard, my stance in the last few weeks uh, was that we would have to push opening day back uh, and that extends to even earlier, so later on the weekend. Um, as we mentioned in last week's podcast, the owners and the players have met um, roughly about once a week until recently when in the last week they were meeting every day um, but the news up until even 36 hours ago was that there was still absolutely no progress getting made uh, across the table. So with last night's deadline in place, so up to 28th of February, which the owners had laid down some time ago to say, listen, if we don't have a, a, an agreement struck by them, we're in real danger of, of not making opening day towards the end of March, start of April. I, I can't quite remember the exact date, um, but it gives us a good four weeks to for spring training to take place. So again, that, that deadline seemed to come and go, but with that also came an extension, which I was really, really pleased about. Uh, and with the extension seemed to come some news. There had been quite a bit of significant progress made. Uh, and what I'm led to believe is there's only, only the one issue left on the table. However, it seems to be that there's some real goodwill now between the two parties. And although they're not going to be friends anytime soon, it looks... If I had to put money on it, I'm pretty sure we're going to have opening day as scheduled this year. I'm not sure how the other guys feel about that or anything they've they've read online. Um, Alan, sorry, Alan, I was going to say, do you reckon we're inching towards a deal then, Alan? Yeah, Dave keeps up to date with it a wee bit more than me, so it's encouraging to hear his, his analysis. Uh, I think uh, starting on time would be fantastic. I, w- I was starting to get the impression that there would potentially be a bit of a delay. Uh, two, two things on that. I think I read somewhere they were genuinely talking about the injuries they had in the shortened season uh, and, and the ability to keep all these guys fit. So they want to make sure they get a full spring training to do that. So the impression I was getting was we would maybe delay the start, but they would still be going for a full season so I don't know if that meant a later finish or whether they would try to pack games in a wee bit more tightly, maybe have a wee bit uh, less off time. Um, I just find it astonishing that a professional sport is in this type of situation. It's You would not see this... You might see it in other American sports. I don't think they do. But you certainly don't see it in any sport that we're used to in, in Europe, and I guess that's the the power of the collective bargaining, um, which again is slightly odd as well, because your collective bargaining on behalf of guys on multi-million pound contracts and guys on professional sportsmen, fairly basic contracts. So it's um, it's just fascinating and and very disappointing that a sport could be in this type of situation. 
this close to the wire. Yeah, um, what I heard and saw on one of the MLB um, emails I get a link through, there's a guy who's following this pretty closely. And yeah, they went right to the wire and the other side of the wire, didn't they, last night, sort of well into the early hours and then said 5 p.m. today, is it Eastern Standard Time was the new deadline with the idea that if they had an agreement then they would start spring training on the 3rd of March, which would give them pretty much exactly four weeks, and this is seen as the minimum spring training, to, as Alan said, potentially avoid any unnecessary or increased risk of injuries. So it looks like there's a chance, you know. Um, you just wonder what... <laughs> I did see something like, because the players are not being allowed to... Obviously, they've been locked out. We've talked about this before, haven't they? They've not been able to to go into the club and train. So you wonder if uh, if they've all been diligent at home, talking about potentially, uh, you know, what footballers do or did back in the in the off season in in Scotland. But I did see one thing like there's a Detroit. Uh, I think he's either the top or the number two prospect. He's an outfield prospect. You might know him. Riley Green, and he'd actually gone back to his high school, so he's probably not in the 40-man roster just now, so he's not locked out, but he has gone back to his high school and was getting some uh, some batting practice in there, and he was saying, you know, he just could not afford to uh, to strike out because of the stick they would get from, you know, from all the kids who were pitching at him, but yeah, it just shows you, I think Spencer Torkelson was doing something in, um, in 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 a camp as well. So some of the fringe players and the prospects are definitely training out there. So I don't know. You might see some of those guys getting a, a chance ahead of some of the senior players if they're you know if they're up to up to speed. Yeah, hopefully we're hopefully we're inching towards a deal. That's kind of the way I think it feels at the moment. But obviously, nothing's settled until it's settled. And I wonder. I feel a wee bit for the kind of parts of America which normally host spring training. I'm sure there's a quite an econ economic benefit to some of those areas as well from having spring training. And spring training would normally start what probably would it have started a week or two ago historically. Yeah, I think it was set for the 15th or 16th of February or around about that time anyway. So, um, yeah, we, we used to work with um, a couple of years ago, Red Sox fans, weren't they? And they would go to spring training for a week or, or more um, every year, wouldn't they, Al? Yeah, 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 they did. They very much enjoyed it. I mean, I think it just, it was, you're, you're watching baseball in the sunshine coming from Scotland where the weather's not that great. Uh, it's a nice atmosphere. Uh, it's, it's good fun. You see a few games very quickly. And I think Arizona, possibly a wee bit too humid for us. Uh, Peely Wally Scots, but uh, Florida seems to be the place to go. And I certainly, it's something on my list. And I know, I think I've mentioned before, our friend Detroit Dave has it in his schedule this year as well. Yeah. There was something quite similar to watching cricket uh, when I watched some of the spring training games last year. Again, all involving the White Sox, but 
Um, you would see families just scattered out on the grass, you know, with a picnic blanket, having a drink. And it was pretty casual, just sitting there in the sun. And I thought that's a pretty good way to spend the day. And as Alan said, you might catch a couple of games depending on the complex involved and the clubs. So no, it seems, um, yeah, I'm sure there's some, some clubs missing out on that money, Richard, which is a, a real shame. But I think there's people missing out on building good memories for their children as well. No, absolutely. Yeah, and baseball is such a game to inspire those kind of memories as well, isn't it? But let, let's hope we can we can start the season we get the opening day that we're all hoping for. How do we feel our teams are, are shaping up if, if we can, if we are only four weeks away or so from opening day? How are the, how are the Tigers shaping up, Alan? We heard reference there to your youngster. Uh, Riley Green, was it his name was? To, he must be ra- racking up some numbers against high school players if he's good enough at his age to get into the Detroit system. Yeah, that reminds you of the old uh, pre-season tours to... Norway and Finland where you'd play the amateur teams and you'd, you'd hear your team winning 12-0 and come, somebody getting a double hat-trick and you think, oh, the boys are on form. Now they're going to come back to, to Scotland and smash it. The, the Tigers uh, are, are very much about um, prospects, although I think the feeling now is we're starting to move beyond... Well, the rebuild... <coughs> continues but with existing players um, with the players we have in, in place just now I was excited to read an interview with, with Miggy Cabrera <coughs> excuse me folks where Miggy was saying that uh, the only thing left in his career uh, and he's had a stellar career is to bring the title to Detroit so he's getting towards his latter years um, he must have feel he's only got maybe one or two left. Uh, so he's obviously talking up their prospects there, which is quite an exciting thing to hear. Uh, yeah, he'd love it to happen. Uh, he's not going to do what Matthew Stafford did in the NFL and leave the Lions and go and win a Super Bowl ring. Uh, and, I, and I believe they're talking about him potentially returning there as well. But no, Miggy's in this for the, to, to the end of his time. Uh, on on the ballpark, and it's it's hopeful. So yeah, you've got Riley Green, you got Spencer Torkelson. Interesting to see the guys potentially make a breakthrough. Which that'll probably depend, I guess, on how how things go. Uh, and I think having had a few winning months last year, the trick for the Tigers now is to make it a winning season. That makes a lot of sense, and I think that uh, Yorkshire Dave might have a. Not just an update around about the Red Sox and, and his hopes for the season to come, but uh, an update as well regarding their situation with spring training. Yeah, it was uh, actually, when you asked the question, I thought, I just sort of realised that I haven't really seen anything whatsoever about the Red Sox and I haven't really been actively looking. You know, I've been following a little bit the negotiations. So, I mean... They can't possibly have actually traded anyone, and uh, <laughs> and so I, I was really so I thought I'll have a quick look at their website just to see if there's any headlines. And the first thing I saw was uh, spring training is um, uh, delayed through seventh of March. So I think the earliest it can start is the 8th of March, so that's obviously five days after it was intended to be. So does that mean 
they will delay the start of the season. Does it mean they've agreed something? I don't know, actually. I need to read the, the whole article. But, uh, you know, that's, um, that's what I've got so far. Without hearing anything specific, you know, my, I sort of rest my hopes with the fact that they've got a very good manager there and that um, they've taken some steps last season with their, with their good young pitchers coming through. So I think we mentioned last time that, uh, you know, one of the, one of their aces, if we could call them that, Erod has gone over at the Tigers. So on the face of it, you would have expected them to trade for, you know, a big name pitcher or two. But, um, you know, a couple of the, 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 the good young pitchers last year might step up, hopefully, and, uh, and certainly, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't think they've improved their roster, put it that way. So it depends on the progress of the of the players that were coming through. But um, you know, there'll be time once they get going. Uh, there'll be you know they can trade for players very quickly, can't they? You know, you'll just see as soon as everything starts up again, you'll see a flurry of activity. And um, but yeah, hopefully it's, it's a delay, but it's not. You know, it's, it could be worse. Looks Absolutely. like it might be happening. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe maybe the boys in Boston have got an inside scoop on how the negotiations are actually going to be concluded. Perhaps that might be the reason why they seem to know a bit more than most. But moving from Boston to Chicago, uh, Dave Jr., how, how are the White Sox looking for the season ahead? You know, we don't have as much work to do in our team as uh, various other organisations in, in the league, to be honest. We've got a really good team. We've got a team that will make postseason. This season, we should win the AL Central again. Um, I think we've probably got the most stable team, sorry, Al, um, that's out there. Uh, we are missing a couple of spots, second base and right field being two problematic areas. Um, but given last season, we um, we really started sorry, most of 2021 for the White Sox. We didn't have our left fielder and our centre field <clears throat> um, and those two guys would have contributed anywhere between you know, 50 and 60 home runs uh, between Luis Robert and Eloy Jimenez. They they would have contributed a lot more. Now, every team has injuries to contend with. I understand that. But these two guys are two big young prospects, uh, particularly Luis Robert, that's, that's got it all. Um, but if you can add some real quality to, to second base, if you can add some quality to right field, I think there's a feeling that if the White Sox are going to pour some money in, it'll be to second base and they can platoon a couple of guys out in right field. Um, if, just if we're going to do some movie puns into the, the show tonight. Um, so again, the, these two guys in particular, Andrew Vaughan and Gavin Sheets, they had the problem that, again, so many young players had over the last couple of years. 2020, there just wasn't a minor league system uh, in play due to covid and normally those types of players would have been getting good experience in uh, single A, double A, triple A against a, a decent level of competition when they were left with nothing. Uh, and last year, they, they were dropped into the, the big league, into the big show. Um, sorry, the show. Uh, and they've done pretty well. Uh, they didn't have stellar seasons by any means, but the feeling is that they can perhaps, with a little bit of more advanced training, that they could be out there in right field, although some good some good options in the free agent market there. Uh, and we've also, we probably need to shore up our, bull, our bullpen a little bit. 
Uh, we've lost a couple of names during the off season, um, but again, we're in good shape. I don't think, particularly in the L Central, more teams have more to do than than the White Sox do. I think it'd be a big surprise if we didn't win that league. Albeit, uh, I think it'll be quite close. Um, but there's there's absolutely nothing to stop the White Sox going on to postseason again, which would be um, three seasons in a row. A real reflection and a kind of strength of the organisation over the last few years, Dave Jr., to hit that kind of consistency. And I guess that's what my Mariners will be aspiring to this year. Uh, I think the flip side of being ahead of the curve, and they did better last year, I think, than most expected, is the expectations get ramped up as well. And now it'll be a case of where they can handle those increased expectations as well. I mean, they've, they've made some, I think, some good acquisitions uh, bringing Robbie Ray and Adam Frazier, but there's still work to be done, I think, to replace Kyle Seeger. I think there's work to be done to strengthen the batting lineup because that was uh, taking individual, some good performances aside. It, it didn't quite get there last year. I think they scored 50 odd less runs than they conceded. And if they're actually going to end that kind of 20 year postseason drought, then they're going to have to uh, turn that equation on its head. And, and get more runs on the board and they and they ship. So exciting. I think, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing how they do, to see those guys that did so well last season come on again. So let's see if they can reproduce that form. A couple of good additions. Let's see if they can maybe, the Mariners can maybe find a couple of good free agents as well. I think there's still some good acquisitions to be had in that marketplace as well. And away from the actual on-pitch stuff, I was saddened the other week to see that... Uh, Julio Cruz, who was very much a fixture within the Spanish language broadcasting piece at the Seattle Mariners, passed away. He was a, an original Seattle Mariner from that inaugural season back in 1977. Uh, actually made his debut on the 4th of July on the, the first year of Mariners' existence as well. So, and he had a very long association with the with the franchise. He also played for the White Sox as well, I believe, Dave Jr. as well. But he, he was very much a fixture, and I was sorry to see the sea of his early passing, but in terms of the Mariners, yep, just to go one better than last season, I think, let's see if we can do that, and that would be a, a fantastic achievement, I think, and out with our own four teams, who do we reckon are the the teams to watch, How is there any chance of a, can we have world champions repeating, or who else will be going for the, for the big prize in baseball? I've sort of half-discussed this when I was... Um invited on to uh, our friend uh, Houston Astros uh, podcast, Rob Fontenot. And um, yeah, uh, I think uh, out of our four teams, certainly the White Sox has the best chance and we're certainly pretty sure they'll win that division and they'll be contenders, you know, for the, uh, for the, for the American League. Um, that's, yeah, I think it was that Rob was quite bullish about the uh, Houston Astros, and who's to say that they won't, uh, you know, get to the World Series um, this year? You know, I think I think if you looked at the last five or six years, they possibly have the best record in baseball. You know, the 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 Rays could it be there? <laughs> could it be their year? Um, don't know about the uh, the National League Braves again. Why not? Alan, who do you, Alan, who do you fancy? Yeah, I think Dave made a good point about the Rays there. I mean, they're the, the the team that seem to 
promise to deliver but don't quite deliver. So that type of situation, well, it'll go one of two ways. One, they'll, they'll ultimately do it or they'll disappear back to uh, being a, being a mid-table team uh, in, in their division. But no, let, let's, I think that would be nice to see. The, the only thing, whilst they've got a great baseball organisation, I do get a wee bit depressed. They don't pull in big crowds. I know they're talking about moving. Uh, and that that's what makes me think. It's not a passionate fan base. It's not maybe like the Astros, the Yankees, the Red Sox, um, so the big ones. So that, I don't know if that affects them when they get to the, the final stage of the season as well. I mean, the same thing would happen in football as well if you don't quite have the backing uh, and you're up against big teams. And yeah, that, that's going to make a difference. How do we feel the Yankees will do this season? <laughs> yeah, Red Sox. Yeah, asking the Red Sox. Hey, the, Red Sox um, the only thing I would say about the Yankees, they're, they're always going to be there, thereabouts, and competitive, aren't they? You know, it's, uh, you know, I think that it's going to be similar in that division to what was last season. You know, maybe we'll mention it again, but I was reminded about my sort of early days of watching baseball when I saw the news today that um, um, the Yankees have made the decision to retire Paul O'Neill's number. He was um, outfielder in the um, in the late 1990s and, you know, the last really great t- Yankees team and um, he started off with the Reds, so he was with them for seven or eight years. He had an amazing career, 17-year career, his last nine years with the New York Yankees. And he, I think he won a batting title in he was, he was uh, His nickname was The Warrior. He was, he was quite a competitive guy, great in the outfield. And he won four World Series with the Yankees. He won one with the Reds, actually, as well. Um, and got to, I think, in his final season or his penultimate season, he, uh, they got there again. But they won it. That was Joe Torre's team. Won it three, three years in a row, um, plus 96. I was, I was looking at that. I mean, this is how good they were. I mean, they're not shy of retiring their numbers. <laughs> Yankees are surprised they've got any numbers left to retire. I mean, they, they famously um, retired all their single-digit numbers in there. I think Jeter was the, the last single digit one on number two. I think they were all retired up to 10. I think there's, there's funnily enough, there's 23 players who have had their number retired, but they've only actually retired 22. We mentioned this before. Number eight was retired for two famous <coughs> catchers, Yogi Berra, who we spoke about before, and um, Bill Dickey. But, but looking at the... Um, the players that are retired who played in that same um, end of century team, 1998 in particular, I was looking at the two pitchers who've um, Andy Pettit and the, you know, they're, they're probably the best closer of all time, Mariano Rivera, um, both retired their numbers, and then two infielders and two outfielders, Derek Jeter, the catcher, Jorge Posada, and Outfield, there's two thirds of the outfield, Bernie Williams and Paul O'Neill. So it, it, it's not surprising that they were pretty successful. And uh, yeah, I remember watching them. They were great. You know, even as a Red Sox fan, I think 
I think baseball is a little bit like cricket in that way, and you want your team to win, but you know you appreciate the game itself, a great game. And uh, whilst I'm glad that they haven't, uh, you know, <laughs> managed to keep that success going, um, yeah, caps off to um, Paul O'Neill, and I think it's going to be Paul O'Neill Day on the 21st of August, 2022. So look out for that one. Yeah, fantastic. And Dave Jr., a, a, worthwhile, a worthy recipient of the honour of having his number retired, do you reckon? I don't know too much about the man, uh, if I'm being honest, Richard. It's uh, my baseball history. I, I tend to lean on Dave, <laughs> to be quite honest. Um, it's something that I don't really know too much about. But um, yeah, I mean, the Yankees taking a bit of a stick there about re- retiring so many numbers. Uh, it's probably fair, though, given their storied success over the years. If any team would would have the most, it would be would be them. Um, but yeah, it's again, it's it's an interesting point because it's it's quite something. I think it's rare on our shores that we would retire numbers um, at all. I think it's a really good touch. But you are uh, there is that Larry David part of my mind takes me to seventy years from now, thinking, well, they've only got twenty squad numbers left. Where do you go from there? Um, what point is there a cut off? Yeah. So it's not as interesting. It's it's a good point. Uh, I don't know. Al, do you get any feelings about that? Yeah, I'm afraid I go to my logical brain here because it's probably the only part of my brain I can go to. There is no artistic side to it, and it, it doesn't make sense to me because at some point you're going to run out of options. And horrified to learn that one of the big teams will have no single digit numbers left as well um it 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 confuses me i try to then think from a from a football perspective because it's bad enough these days that you have squad numbers um i I vaguely get that but i still like seeing players who have the shirts one to eleven imagine if you retired a goalkeeper's jumper the number one Uh, nobody (laughs) in your team is going to be number one again uh, nobody fair could point. be number. He could be retiring number nine it's a as, fair as point, well. Huh? So, um, yeah, tell, yeah. The that. listeners can tell us what they think about it. But yeah. uh, no, I'm, I'm, I might be considered a traditionalist by some. Uh, some not not a not a big fan of it. I'll I'll try and sort of get uh, some friends back from the uh, Yankee listeners by saying that yeah. I was being a bit flippant, but the players don't, you know, they never wear positional numbers, do they? So your position in the field, you know, pitcher one, catcher two, three, four, five, six, infield, seven, eight, nine, outfield. But it's, it's you know, you, you don't wear that even traditionally. I don't think they've ever worn that. Maybe, maybe they did, and that's why potentially, to look into that, maybe that's why potentially they, the, um, the single-digit numbers retired first because, you know, looking back, having said that, what was, was Babe Ruth three? And I don't think, I think, uh, where did he, was he first baseman? I'm not sure. He was pitcher for a while. Anyway, you know, I don't think they're going to run out soon because 22 is the Yankees' record. And I think the nearest other one, you know, is 11. Some some new newish teams haven't retired anybody so they've got you know that's over 100 years of being playing the game so 
Yeah, I think we'll they'll be all right for another couple of centuries, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> we can let them know when we feel it's going too far, Alan, say 120 years from now. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I'm glad I'm not going to be around for the current <laughs> I still find the baseball numbering quite fascinating. I explained to my son. Uh, it must have been about a year ago, that at any point during the game, each player represents three different numbers. Um, you know, you've got your squad number on your back. Uh, you're sitting there with Alan's got his 55. Uh, he's also got his number in the old position-wise, in terms of your know, one and two, your, your pitching, your catcher, and, and so on and so forth. But you've also got your batting order number as well. So I, I do quite like that. Um, again, we do use reference to that in football. You can talk about your your false nine or your your wingers are seven and eleven. Um, oh, sorry, Alan's holding up his his numbers forty one just now, which was some time ago. Was that your? What does that say at the top, Alan Mensa? Is that your Mensa result? <laughs> um, and you know, we are, we're quite traditionalists when we come back to our football, um, so we can understand where these things come from. But I quite like all these different facets of baseball. Absolutely. It's funny, it just tells you the kind of standard that people are held to. I've actually seen quite a lot of chatter suggesting that Paul O'Neill is maybe not quite such an obvious shoe-in for that. And as you say, if, if the four world, se- uh, four world Series and year after year of incredible performances isn't enough, it just shows you how high the standard is. Uh, but I like that as well. I like the idea that getting your number retired is an incredible testament to what you've achieved the same way you get into the Hall of Fame should be really really hard and just being very very good shouldn't be enough to get into the Hall of Fame it has to be even beyond that I think to to keep up having its its value and its worth as well but certainly as Paul O'Neill is also the name of my brother who lives in the Pacific Northwest of America I've got a soft spot for Mr O'Neill of the Yankees so I'm glad to see him being recognized in such a fashion but from all the way from New York to, and at the moment, we don't know for definite we're going to have baseball in America. But you know what? Baseball actually takes place within our very shores in Scotland as well. And if there's one of our bullpen bros that knows more about that than the rest of us, it's Alan. Yeah, well, what, what I wanted to talk about a wee bit was the, 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 the Scots who've played in the major leagues, um, who what we might affectionately term as the the Scots heard around the world. So you'll be familiar with the blog we started last year for the Highland Bullpen on WordPress. So the Highland Bullpen slash WordPress or whatever you Google that, you'll find it quite easily. We were we were using that a lot to chat about, to talk about our football travel experiences, to try to give a picture of the, the various places we went to, how we enjoyed it, what we thought about it, how you can get there, what the stadium's like pass on some knowledge for people who might want to make that trip at some time as well. So I thought it was about time I dipped my toe into a wee bit of baseball blogging and we are far from experts on any matters. So we thought, well, what will we become an expert on? So using the wonderful baseball reference website, I was able to filter it and find major league baseball players who were born in Scotland. So I I have found seven. Uh, when I was on the Wikipedia page for one of the guys, and Wikipedia is, of course, always correct, uh, it referenced eight players born in Scotland. So not surprisingly, there will be more. But what we did last week was we released episode one uh, or page one of that history where we outlined 
who the players were, trying to give a wee bit of a flavour as to why Scottish guys might be playing over there as well. Because obviously, a few of these guys were back in the 1800s and would be part of the emigration waves over to the new lands uh, across the, the big pond. Uh, so there's a wee bit of, try to get a wee bit of Scottish history, try to give a wee bit of knowledge on, on the guys. Unfortunately, none of them played for the New York Highlanders, uh, which would have been quite appropriate. We'll, we'll do a wee bit of research and find out who actually did play for the New, New York Highlanders uh, and whether that name has anything to do with uh, our, our neck of the woods. Uh, so I'm going to develop this over the coming weeks. We'll talk a wee bit, we'll, we'll write a wee bit more about the, the individual players. Uh, we'll try and give you some background on them. What One of the chaps was actually born in the parish of Campsie, uh, and, and the only reason I mention that is that that effectively would be the parish that I would live in just now as well. So uh, 1860 or such like Hugh Nicoll was born. So it would be Great if I could manage to do a wee bit of genealogy on that as well. He must have people still here. I know his parents had a, a number of kids when they were over in the States. So uh, it really would be good if any of our listeners were able to add to our knowledge on, on Scottish baseball players. Though there must be plenty of first-generation guys there, there as well. But uh, I enjoy that sort of stuff. It's quite, it's quite interesting time to research something that maybe as a collective might not have been looked at significantly before as well. So um, hopefully folks might find that bit of interest and th thanks to everybody who's already read that particular blog. Excellent, Alan. And I know those blogs are always a really good read as well. And I think you've, you've unearthed a really great topic as well, because obviously Bobby Thompson, by a very, very, very large distance, the most famous Scottish-born baseball player. But it's fascinating to hear who make up that other complement of seven or eight, as it turns out, but, but certainly a very a single-digit figure of Scots who've uh, graced the major leagues in baseball. So I'm really, I'm certainly really looking forward to, to finding yeah. out more about that as well, Alan. As you see, there's a large part of social history there as well and what brought them all the way over there for what would have been a colossal journey of the time many days on a yeah. ship in those times and then what the, what caused them to leave and, and what was the story once they arrived there as well. So that'll be a, a fantastic topic. Really, really look forward to that. It, it hadn't crossed my mind until you said that. And obviously we're not quite at the right numbers, but I wonder I wonder how close we can get to getting uh, the various different positions on the ballpark mm -hmm. then as well and whether we need to add in some of our honorary Scots, my favourite of which currently playing is, of course, Fernando Tatis. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. How do people find the blog, Alan? Just to pimp it out for a wee minute. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a website. It's the Highland Bullpen, and we use WordPress for the blogging. So if you, if you Google the Highland Bullpen WordPress, I would expect you to get on the blog. Um, and then this particular one we have surprisingly named the Scots Heard Around the World. Uh, I've labelled it as number one. I do believe I can edit it, uh, but I've labelled it as number one in case I can't edit it and I need to go into number two as well. But my, my idea is I would date each time I write something. So for those of you who are reading it, 
you can quickly scroll to the new piece then as well. And you can comment and you can give feedback. And of course, you can contact us directly on Highland Bullpen via Twitter or Instagram or such like. Um, and and we, we'd, we'd love to hear what more of what you'd like to hear about um, and any knowledge you can pass on. Yeah. I'd be really interested, actually. I know it's it's an unanswerable question. I'd love to know who number eight will be or or when it will be. Uh, that'd be really quite interesting. I wonder if there's any budding young players you know, currently playing their trade in Scotland or in the, the minor leagues over in the States or who knows, in Japan. Um, it'd be really interesting to see, even extend that to Brits, uh, if there's anybody ready to make a breakthrough in the yeah. next few years. Yeah, that'd be a really good one as well, Dave Jr. And I guess as well now with kind of travel, the world hopefully opening up again for international travel and stuff. If you're, if you're, you're coming from the States and you'd like some, some advice and things to do while you're in Scotland, places to see, get in touch with the Highland Bill Pen as well, because I think we've all of us been the recipients of generous American hospitality when I've been over in the States. So it'd be great to point people in the right direction if they're travelling in that direction anytime soon. 100%. I'll take them to any golf course they want. <laughs> yeah, excellent, excellent. And in terms of the, you know, that influence of, of Scots there, Alan, I'm trying, is there any more indication on, you mentioned some of them are 19th century, are there a couple more within the 20th century as well? Yeah, what one of the lads, I think, was in the 1970s. Ah. He's the most recent one. Uh Bobby Thompson has, in my understanding, played over half the games of the total they have played. Uh, I'll need to validate that. Uh, there's a, a couple of them have played a fair chunk of games. Obviously, that's half a dozen spread out over the, like the I think Bobby played about 1,700 games or something, 1,300 or 1,700 games. So, uh, yeah, it, it it's an interest to me. I remember when the back to the NFL uh, and obviously I've been in the Carolinas a few times. The, the Carolina Panthers got to the Super Bowl a few years ago and uh, promptly blew that and have never done well since then. But their kicker was born in Scotland. Okay. The connection there, I think, was his father might have been US Navy. Hmm. Obviously a fairly big presence in Scotland. Uh, meet meet a young lady here, stay, and then head back over. So it, it's not inconceivable. So the guy had spent, I think much like our previous guest, Campbell McLaren, would have spent most of his life in the States, but would have been born in Scotland and would retain that affinity to Scotland and the, the natural heritage and connection there as well. So that might well be the source for any future star coming through as well, I guess. Absolutely. I can imagine American football, you know, you can see that, particularly the kicking, because so many of our sports here focus on kicking. And I'm pretty sure Gavin Hastings, who, who was a former Scotland rugby union captain, I'm sure he at least tried out. I think he played in what was, was it called NFL Europe at the time? Was that what it was? I think I may have been. Uh, yeah. so, so, yes, you can imagine Scots could maybe have more of a role in American football. Dave Junior? I'm sure he joined in um, at definitely trials. He might even have played the Claymores 
at one point, Richard, uh, Scottish Claymores at Hamden. Um, yeah, he was definitely involved to an extent, definitely. Yeah, so, and that's actually a bit of a rich uh, topic in future, actually, if we bring in a bit more American football, uh, the Scottish Claymores and, and our country's history of American football. Uh, would be a nice topic for another day as well. But on the subject of sports, but not the baseball, uh, there was a bit of bit of history, personal history made for you, Alan, recently when you took in, I believe, uh, an evening at the boxing for the first time in your life. Yeah, that was that was my first uh, go watching live boxing. I watched a wee bit on the TV. I quite enjoy I'll enjoy any sport, but I, yeah, I got to go and see World Championship boxing, which was uh, absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. So it was over at the Hydro. It was Josh Taylor, Jack Catterall. Um, so the Hydro is big, uh, generally a music concert venue in Glasgow. Fantastic facility. Uh, slightly differently set out, obviously, for the boxing. The ring is obviously in the centre of the the standing area where the is it the mosh pit they would call it these days for the <laughs> the, the youngsters out pogoing or whatever they do at the the front of a concert. <laughs> uh, they probably don't do that anymore. And they probably don't throw, well, they, they do throw beer over each other. That, that's still, that, that's a lifelong tradition. So uh, great, great to go and see something. So I, I liked the whole experience. Uh, there, I saw four fights because there's obviously the undercard. So um, not, not as an expert on boxing, if you're watching a big fight, you tend to tune in for the big fight. And when, wouldn't bother with the undercard. Uh, so the night included, interestingly, um, Scottish Heavyweight Championship. And what 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 took me aback here, and you guys might know a wee bit more, was this was the first time in 71 years that the Scottish Heavyweight Championship was contested for. So we, we might not be known for our bigger boxers. And, and I guess if you look at the great line of Scottish boxers. They're probably generally lightweight type guys. I can't remember what Jim Watt was. Did Jim fight a wee bit above lightweight or was he lightweight? Did he fight a welter and light, I think, from memory. Yeah, yeah so so that, that was quite surprising. Um, so there's a couple of guys. One of them was a former rugby player. Actually, you talked about rugby earlier with Gavin Hastings. Uh, and, and he won. Um, it, it would be fair to say he was... Uh, perhaps the more athletic of the two and maybe his sporting background allowed that to be the case um, but the other lad could take a punch <laughs> uh, so he was he was getting hit about but he wasn't he wasn't for flinching that the ref had to stop it we also had a chap I think his name was Rodriguez a double Olympic champion on the bill uh, which was quite a, a great thing to see a Cuban guy and interestingly waving Cuban and American flags uh, so he's obviously potentially left Cuba and turned professional, which might make sense because I think they look after their their boxers quite well in Cuba. So he might have uh, he's he's obviously gone down the professional route. But then the the, the main bout of the night uh, went the distance, went the twelve rounds. Um, the decision for Taylor to have retained his title seems to have been controversial. You you know a lot more about this and can can maybe give your views in a wee second Richard from from my <clears throat> from my perspective obviously I wanted the Scottish guy to win I, I thought the Catterall 
decent fighter, but I thought he was throwing punches, then holding on to Taylor a lot, um, and wasn't maybe being as aggressive or allowing the fight to go as much as he could have. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, boxing, I think, is just purely scored on hits in the hit area, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Alan, that's, that's right. And it's a really difficult one because obviously we're all proud Scots. We're all very proud of what George Taylor has achieved in, in his career. It's... It wasn't the worst decision, uh, judging decision I've ever seen in boxing, but it probably been the top five. Uh, to be honest, I had him, I had him three to four points behind, uh, and I think that was probably fairly even. You know, I thought that was a fairly reasonable, and it was very, very hard to see how he got enough points to win from my perspective. But as I say, boxing is ultimately subjective you know there's always been historical differences in Europe and Britain we've traditionally been more generous towards fighters who boxed well technically who have landed those punches in the right areas Alan American judges tend to favor historically a lot of action a lot of effort a lot of intent uh, and sometimes awarded points for that over some of the technical uh, punches being landed but yeah it was a yeah it was a, a tough one to see. Uh, I feel sorry for any, for any boxer, Jack Castro in this case, who can realistically feel at the end of 12 very tough rounds that he's done enough to win uh, the world title. But Dave Jr., what was your take on it? Yeah, I mean, I, I was sitting watching it myself. And again, it's, it's hard as a Scotsman. And I really quite like Josh Taylor. Um, he should be proud of everything that he's achieved. I couldn't believe when he, he just had his hand raised. I kept thinking to myself, it's not that I could justify, I think there was one drawn scorecard in there and it's not that I could justify it, but I think when one came out that he was three rounds ahead, that was completely completely bonkers. When, when the drawn scorecard came out, um, as I think that was, a, that was the first one announced, um, I thought, well, maybe it's going to be a, a kind of majority win for, um, for Cattrall. But to actually, for, for the final results to come out the way they did, it's bizarre. Now, I'm a big, big MMA fan, and some of the fights you see, you know, the scorecards coming back, they're wild. They, they really can be wild at times. And these judges, you know, their decisions affect people for the rest of their life. Um, and, and I don't think they're really held up to much scrutiny in the past, um, or, or they're not really held up to much discipline with disciplinary measures or, or being looked at by their peers. I could be wrong. Um, but that boy, Jack Catterall, as much as we wanted Taylor to win, um, that was a chance, not, not just at a, a world title, at the undisputed world title, something that even if he boxes well for the rest of his life, there's very little chance that he'll get to ever do that again. Um, so no, you've got to be disappointed for him. I guess but, from my perspective as well, that I was, I was actually lucky enough to be ringside at one of the great controversies of the past when... Lennox Lewis was denied the world title when he fought against Evander Holyfield in Madison Square Garden back in 1999. And I actually think the, the disparity between what we saw and the actual, you know, what seemed to be the result was probably about the same level. I, I didn't have Lewis quite as clear a winner, perhaps, as I had Castro, to be honest. But the Lewis-Holyfield fight sparked a huge controversy. And even among a, a crowd, and there were a lot of Brits in that crowd that night, even among Americans who are in New York's as partisan a sports crowd as you'll ever find, I think there was a recognition that Lewis had been had been done wrong 
by that decision as well. And I always remember Don King furiously and, you know, going round the judges, uh, spreading his influence round the place as well, because ultimately that led to, you know, that was the, the opportunity, the money there was in the chance of a rematch as well. So boxing, it happens. It's not like unless unless somebody's knocked out or stopped, there's always the option to, somebody might see it just very, very differently. And that night in New York, it was the American judge, Jean Williams. And I think the fact that it was a woman, and I know I've moved on to a better place in terms of sport and, and, and equality and things like that. Uh, I think that was honestly partly why that decision, her decision to give it to Holyfield seven rounds to five was criticised so much as well. So there's always been controversy in boxing decisions since since the first guy threw a punch, to be honest with you. But uh, yeah, I think this is a, a tough one. And Dave Ince, with your broad experience as well, what was your take on it? No, I didn't actually see the fight so um i couldn't i couldn't comment i've heard about it and uh you know they're talking about obviously a, a rematch so uh, yeah you, i mean in a sport like that when guys are you, you know i'm not sure particularly like the way boxing has gone in terms of how the fights are staged before they happen you know this sort of um i don't even know how to put it but um they're sort of ramping up the the dislike, the hatred of each other and that sort of thing. And I, I don't really like that. But when the two guys get in the ring and if they go a full 12 rounds exchanging punches, uh, you know, it is an honest... Well, it, they are honest with each other afterwards, are they? And it's usually there's no animosity and there's just respect for each other. So I would imagine if you... If you left it for the two boxers, they'd probably say, yeah, let's do it again. Yeah. I've half assumed that would have happened because it was so close. But um, it it seems to be that the suggestion was they wanted Taylor to win because there's a more lucrative fight potentially lined up now, presumably in the US. But I, I think the guy deserves another chance. Yeah, it's just difficult because the weights are going in different directions as well. So that's the yeah. challenge. And there's, you know, you, some people might say, well, you can have a catch weight fight, but there's no money, no money in catch. There's no catch weight title to claim. So there's no there's no money in that. So it's, uh, yeah, a very difficult one. And yes, it is very often the case that when people have lined up or assumed to have lined up big money fights, particularly in the States, very often they get sympathetic judging in any fights that they have leading up to that. Mm. But, Alan, how did the crowd react at the time? You were obviously lucky enough to be to be ringside for it. Yeah, I mean, the crowd is predominantly Scottish. Uh, so, the, uh, again, uh, I might have been naive. It seemed to me the crowd were very happy. Uh, the crowd wanted them to win. And you're, you're looking at Catterall's fans and thinking, well, yeah, they're going to be disappointed. I didn't quite realise the depth of it until you get home and watch it on, on, on TV. Pro- probably the other comment to make as well, to finish my night out, I took the last train home. So that's an experience. The last train home on the night of World Championship Boxing in Glasgow. Scotland have been playing France at rugby and we're sort of moving out of lockdown and people seem to be out in the town enjoying themselves as well. So, yeah, if you're looking for more boxing, if you're looking for some karaoke, if you're just looking for some sort of general entertainment and banter, 
just go for the last train out of Glasgow on a Saturday night. Yeah, I think that would count as lively, would be a description I would give for that. <laughs> you know, f- fantastic in there. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I looked like a fantastic experience, Alan, regardless yeah, of anything to do, to, to do with the results. So we're glad you had a, a fantastic time there. Somebody who's had a less than fantastic time in the last few days is Marcelo Bielsa, the manager or now former manager of Leeds United, Yorkshire Dave's beloved football team. Uh, Dave, uh, I know you've you've always had a lot of time for Marcelo Bielsa and he's got an incredible record in, in the game of football and he's a character that people warm to. So did Leeds just pull the trigger too soon? Yeah, it's yeah, it's hard to take, I would say. You know, I don't think I've been more upset in a decision before you know it's uh, I think I've mentioned uh, before we went on air that uh, I haven't read the full article but um, Phil Hay in The Athletic who covers Leeds United um, himself a Scot from Edinburgh <clears throat> his headline was uh, you know it wasn't meant to end like this and um, it's it's so tough to take for a Leeds fan you know the, as the song goes we've had our ups and downs and this is very much a a down following, you know, quite a few ups recently, especially last season was just joyful, wasn't it? Especially how they finished last season um, with almost like championship winning form, didn't they? They, they were, if, if not the best, the last 10 games, they were either had the best record or setting best rest, records to Liverpool or Man City. So, you know, he had expectations uh, this season um, were good. I think he's been very unlucky with the, the three key players. The captain, you know, the star midfielder, England, you know, played every game in the Euros for England, Phillips. And, uh, you know, the number nine, they've been missing virtually all season. And, yeah, the results haven't gone very well. I think they... Um, but the last few games, it has looked a little bit, you know, like an implosion. But they've been playing the, the best teams, haven't they? And... Um, I thought they might have held the nerve a bit longer, especially with the, you know, um, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes, do you? And if there's any, um, you know, the nerves are there. I saw the new guy who's got very good reputations, Jess Jess Marsh. He was talking about lifting the stress because it must get to the players when they know that they've got, to quote uh, one of my favourite films, and Dave's not here to hear it, but... They've got that that sinking feeling, you know. They just, um, it just not only were they not picking up points, uh, they were losing very heavily, and it's got to have an effect on the the the, the confidence. Uh, you know, it's just I'm just upset that the guy's gone. Funnily enough, we we're sort of looking to move house, and we were over looking at a property near Weatherby Way where the great man lived until um, the other day. I think he might have left now. And he really took to Yorkshire, the people, Leeds and the players in a way that, you know, I don't think he's, the man's unique in every respect. You know, it's just football... I think the critics are coming out now, aren't they? Say maybe, well, you know, maybe he's not the best coach in the world. But if you put on top of that how he reacts as a 
and what he's like as a human being and what he's done for people, local people. He just never, he, he's always got time for everybody. His responses, you know, he never criticizes referees or other teams or other managers, doesn't get into fights like that. Um, but after that game, you know, the Tottenham game, which I watched, I watched the interview and there was, you could definitely tell he looked like he knew what was coming, you know, looked like a broken man. And it was really sad to, you know, I was almost, I don't mind saying, I was almost in tears watching it. And it's, you know, you can probably tell by uh, my demeanour that I'm really upset about it. And, you know, just, that's, you know, that's all I can say. I, I thank the guy for actually turning Leeds around, not just football terms, but the way people look at Leeds United now as a club. It's uh, down to him. Well, I hope with the benefit of a little bit of time, people will get a chance to reflect on the totality of everything that Marcelo Bielsa has done at uh, Leeds United. From the point of view of our American listeners, Alan, I imagine there'll be real interest, Jesse Marsh, in place now, an American coach of a, a major British uh, you know, English Premier League club. They'll be very interested to see how he does. He's a native of a scene in Wisconsin. Maybe a Milwaukee Brewers fan, who knows? Uh, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how he gets on, Alan. Yeah, I don't know too much about his background. He, he was coaching in Europe, though. Was he in Germany before he came here? Yes, for the Red Bull Club, Salzburg and Leipzig, where he did well. I'll need to look a wee bit more into his American history. I, I, yeah, Hard not to like Bielsa. I know I've got a bit of a soft spot for the Whites. Um, and I went to went to a Leeds game when Bielsa was in charge with with Dave. Just a that must have been three years ago or something like that. I remember one as usual went into the club shop and the guy tried to punt us um, a bucket. Uh, he's obviously very famously sat on his bucket <laughs> all the time then as well. So something I found out about Bielsa, and Dave might know this a few weeks ago, just completely coincidentally, and uh, Newell Old Boys, who I think he played for in Argentina, and obviously there's an English influence in Argentina and Argentinian football. Newell Old Boys play in the Estadio Marcelo Bielsa. Uh, so sufficiently well-respected at his old club that they named the stadium after him, him as well. So, yeah, um, and obviously, once he marched do well, once he leads do well, we want to make sure they're in the Premiership next year. It it had been a rough spell for them, particularly that seven days where they got they basically they did get pumped three times. So need need to turn it around, get some points on the board, uh, and then we can look at uh, seeing how he develops Leeds next season. There's usually a new manager bounce. Um, so, yeah, let, let's hope that Leeds get that and pull away to safety uh, in the rest of the season. That is some compliment having a whole stadium named after, you know, some managers have had stands and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's a tribute to, uh, to, to obviously everything, the regard in which he's held. It'll be interesting to see how Leeds do. And I know that Manchester United and Leeds traditionally, to say it lightly, don't like each other too much, Yorkshire Dave. But there's a connection now because Manchester United's manager, Ralph Ragnick, Ragnick was a manager and your man Jess Marsh was his assistant in Germany. 
I mean, I think yeah, they were like Leipzig, weren't they? So there's a bit of a connection there. Yeah. I suspect the fans won't like each other anymore because of it, but it's one of these little twists of fate. No, it's, it's one of them. You can't do anything about it, you know. I, don't, I can't say that, you, you know, I'm a Man United fan, yet you respect him for playing good football and, you know, especially in the 90s and all that. And I, I don't like the level that the hatred and his hatred goes to. It's, you know, it shouldn't be that way in some of the, you know, stuff that goes on and is said and sang between the fans is not right. But, um, yeah, I, I think, um, Marsh, was he not uh, potentially looked at by Celtic at that point when they got the um, the current manager in Australia and were they not looking at him? I think they may have been looking at him. It might have been, to be honest, a bit, a bit ambitious, to be honest, because he wasn't held in very high regard for the job he did. Uh, in, in Germany so it was probably a stretch too far at that point mm-hmm. I'm happy with the route that we ultimately took so but yeah. we'll see if it's either myself or Alan who's happy come the end of the season and on the subject of the end of things we are rapidly running out of time here on the bullpen as of this very minute there is still no breakthrough in the talks between the MLB players and Major League Baseball so let's all of us whether you're listening Anywhere in the world, wherever you are, keep your fingers crossed as the bullpen goes will be as well. That we get a deal and we get baseball. So we can talk about that next time on the Highland Bullpen.